0: Okay, my friends, are you ready for another, I hope, great class? This is the, the fourth, and for this year, the concluding class, or presentation, on the illuminating holiday that we call Hanukkah, our Jewish festival of lights. And we've covered quite a bit of interesting ground over the past couple of days. I think we could say shedding fresh light on a very old but eternally relevant story. And so, today will be no different. Even though muddy waters doesn't sound particularly delicious or inspiring, I think that you will find, with Hashem's help, Today's class filled with uplifting inspiration and lots of good lessons for life. Lots of good lessons for life because you will see as we make our way through today's class that the battle of Hanukkah, it never ended. In fact, it's ongoing right now. There's a battle. And you and I are in the thick of that battle. We just have to choose a side. I think you should choose the side of light. I think you should avoid the muddy waters. I think you should find the pure oil. And you should kindle the illumination of your So, let's move forward. Muddy waters. On the surface, sounds like a funny title. Because Chanukah uh, is about oil. Donuts, called sufganiyot in Hebrew, or panchikas in Yiddish, are fried, or deep fried, in oil. Latkes, made of whatever was available, are little pancakes, fried in oil. The original tradition is really the, the donuts. I think that's much older, much more authentic. In fact, Rambam's father, the great Dayan Rav Maimon, wrote that it's a really important thing to eat some donuts. I know this is really hard for a lot of people. Like, eat some donuts. He said there should even be a meal, a donut meal. When you recite the blessing, the after blessing, and you say the words, Al Mizbachecha, you should think of the restoration of Hashem's altar and the Besam Migdash. We talked about this at length in a previous episode. Potatoes didn't come to Europe until a couple of hundred years ago. So we can't really fool anybody and say, well, there's an ancient custom of eating potato latkes. That's ridiculous. Jews living in Eastern Europe didn't have an abundance of flour or easy availability of wheat during the winter. And if you had to choose between bread or donuts, hey, you got to survive. The bread came first. But then Columbus discovers the new world, and they bring potatoes to Europe. And it becomes all the rage in Eastern Europe. And before you know it, everybody is using potatoes. They're cheap, and they grow well in soil. In fertile soil that doesn't have balmy or arid weather. That's where the potato latkes come from. Some people make cheese latkes, and there's a tradition that goes along with that too. The point isn't what's fried. The point is that it is fried. Oil is the big thing. Well, today we are going to learn that just as oil is iconic of the Hanukkah struggle and victory, there's a very wet or watery element attached to this as well. But it isn't clean. We'll discover some real dirt on Khamika today. Let me begin by saying this. We've already analyzed the prayer formula, which is called Al-Hanisim. We talked about it in our first episode, tomorrow when the war began, and we emphasized that... Or highlighted, perhaps, is a better word, that the that the term Bimei Matas Ben Yochanan Kohen Chashmanoi isn't really conjoined. According to most Rishonim, Matas the son of Yochanan Kohen is not the Chashmanoi. Rather, in the days of and Kohen and the Chashmanoi, Yochanan Kohen Chashmanoi uvanav. Now, the interesting thing is that uh, al Hanisim goes on to say, Kisha'omda malchus Yovan harisha, when the evil empire, and Yovan literally translates as Greek or Greece, the evil Greek empire. Now, that's a little odd, and I'll tell you why. Alexander, the great's Greek empire, actually fractured. Ptolemy establishes what becomes known as the Greek, the Ptolemic Greek empire. The Seleucid dynasty establishes what they call the Assyrian Greek empire. It's not even fair to say, in the days of the wicked Greek empire, firstly, the other Greek empire wasn't that, that sweet or righteous, And secondly, it doesn't identify it fully. And yet, our sages, when they formulated this prayer, they emphasized the uprising of the empire. Even more troubling is the fact that that very empire was actually good to the Jews. The original emperor, the architect, the innovator, In fact, the builder of the original empire, Alexander of Macedonia, known as Alexander the Great, he was very kind to the Jewish people. He was favorably disposed to them. Many of the Greeks didn't have issue or particular hatred for the Jewish people. The Talmud relates numerous debates between Chachma Yisrael and Chachma Yomon, between the wise men of Israel and the wise men of Greece. Aristotle knew quite a bit about the Jewish people. There were many great rabbis who studied Aristotle's works and had high respect for him. Philo was Jewish. Plato wasn't, but he was favorably disposed to the Jews. And to the best of my knowledge, Socrates was not a particular anti-Semite either. Why bother identifying the Greek Empire? In the other Al al-hanism, which we recite on Purim, and I refer you to the previous episode if you want to appreciate and understand the evolution of this prayer, where it came from, and why and how it was formulated, we say, Esther. In the days of Mordechai and Esther, in Shushan Habiro, we don't talk about the Persian Empire, although it was the Persian Empire, that dominated the world at the time, and made a decision to annihilate the Jews, straight up. You're talking about a massive, sprawling empire that, according to some versions, stretches all the way from Eurasia to India, encompassing much of Africa. All these places had Jewish people living in them. We know of a Jewish community in Europe. We know of a Jewish community in Asia Minor. We know of Jews who lived in China. We know of Jews living in India. The premise of the Purim story is that each and every single member of the Jewish people would be annihilated in one day. And they were all living in the Persian Empire. That's pretty evil. Oh, by the way, the king of the Persian Empire, he was no particular friend of the Jewish people. If you take a look in the Talmud's account of Haman, the wicked, evil, despotic prime minister, in his negotiations with Ahasuerus, who is the emperor or king, you'll find Ahasuerus didn't have to be talked into it. And there was quite a bit of anti-Semitism in the Persian Empire. From the highest levels of government down into the ordinary people on the street. So why do we identify Hanukkah's villain as Malchus Yavin and HaRasha? And we talk about Mordechai and Esther who dealt with Haman HaRasha. It says, Haman HaRasha, Bikesh LaHashmed LaHareg abed When it's Haman, we personalize it. We point the finger at Haman. We say, he knocked him down, Haman down. There was a battle. It wasn't just hanging Haman. The battle is actually detailed in the Megillah itself. And yet here, we refer to the government. Very, very broad terms. Please forgive me. So, what if there's a secret code here? What if the name Yavan is used because it actually tells us something? Whereas Poros, the Hebrew name for the Persian Empire, doesn't have any particular lesson for us. Well, this very supposition forms the segue into a fascinating manuscript of our Rebbe that was discovered posthumously. In this manuscript, the Rebbe jots down a couple of notes, literally a few sentences, stringing together a vast array of Torah ideas. And from it emerges, perhaps, the cracking of the code, why it is that al Hanisim emphasizes Malchus Yovan Harashah. Let me give you a hint. There's something in the name Yavon. There's something in that name that actually continues to resonate with a sense of urgency and relevancy in today's day and age. And it should be noted for everybody that we, the Jewish people, have nothing against Greece or the Greek people. This is a a fact that there was an enemy, a great enemy of our people named Antiochus, who called himself Epiphanes, the brilliant one, the divine one, living in Athens. It is also true that after the story of Hanukkah, the Greek empire, or at least the Seleucid Greek empire, began to crumble, and that it was eventually replaced by the Romans. But just as there are no Romans today, there are no Greeks either today. The Assyrian Greeks are an ancient people. Just as the Romans are an ancient people. I mean, there may be a city called Rome, and perhaps citizens are called Roman citizens, but they're not Romans. And some of my best non-Jewish friends are actually Italian. <laughs> I don't look at them as Roman. And when I meet Greek people, i say, oh, You're like Malchus Yavon Arashah. You're one of those Greeks. So, we're not talking about a modern day country. We're not talking about a modern day people. We're talking about almost an idea. Like some kind of theological representation that comes through in the name Yavon. That'll be our opening, if you will, segue into this, what I hope will be, uplifting and informative presentation, Muddy Waters. Now, when we read the al Hanism, we get a description of what our enemies wanted from us. We're told very clearly that they did not desire our physical annihilation or destruction. In fact, they didn't even seek exile or disposition from the land of Israel. What they sought was hashkicham Torah techa. They sought to make us forget God's Torah. Our rabbis point out, and this is richly illustrated in many, many Hasidic discourses, it wasn't just hashkicham Torah, to make us forget Torah. It was hashkicham Torah techa, to make them forget your Torah. In other words, Torah's divinity, Torah's Wisdom as it is revelatory, coming from God. But if you want to study just Jewish wisdom or Jewish studies, well, go right ahead. If that's called Torah, so be it. In China, they call it Confucius. And, it, uh, and perhaps in, in, in Greece, they call it Aristotelian. You study Torah. But they wanted to make us forget that the Torah isn't another repository of clever aphorisms or insightful sayings, not even just profound teachings about life or a brilliant legal system. Perhaps they were okay with all those things. As long as we would truncate the ideas, the teachings, the concepts, and the philosophies from their divine origin. Lashkicham Torah techa. And to remove them from the statutes of your desire. There are three kinds of mitzvot. There are mitzvot that we can understand. They're called mishpatim. Ordinances, laws. Most normal people understand that murder is wrong. They understand that rape is wrong. They understand that theft is wrong. They understand that respecting parents is right this is in the realm of Mishpatim all the things I mentioned are actually Mitzvot, the commandments in the Torah but that notwithstanding it isn't beyond the pale of most people's rhyme and reason there are some Mitzvot which are called Edut testimonials you know like perhaps there is certain garb or raiment which is associated with the Jewish people on a national level Talit, Tefillin all right. In Scotland they wear a, a kilt. And perhaps in certain parts of India people wear a kirpan. It doesn't really make a difference. The Sikhs kirpan and the Scottish kilt aren't, at least theoretically, that different than a talit or tefillin. It's, it's a national garb. It's, you know It has some kind of motif of meaning attached to it, but it represents something. Eating matzah on Pesach isn't different than certain foods that most faith systems have related to their own observances of special days. And in fact, they are always national pastimes. You know, like Canadians like poutine. Or beer. It doesn't make it religious per se to eat a certain kind of food at a certain time. Or at least it doesn't have to be. It can appear to serve as a testimonial to a particular place or time or both. And then there are the mitzvot that don't make sense to us. We just can't wrap our heads around them. A primary example is the laws of ritual purity and impurity. Where the olive oil has to be pure and can't be defiled. Defile doesn't mean mixing sediment. Defile doesn't mean to have impurities as in toxins or perhaps some of the bulk of the olive itself. It's a spiritual concept. Let me spell it out for you. A person can become defiled too. The vast majority of defilement that a person might experience in fact, all of the defilement requires immersion in a mikvah, some of the impurities require other different procedures that have to be engaged in or experienced. But everyone needs to go to a mikvah, and a mikvah essentially is a body of water that is gathered without human intervention. So whether it's a, an ocean, a lake, a cistern of rainwater, or a natural spring, or perhaps even a man-made area that fills with rain or fills with water that kind of comes from any stream or gully or river. In that event, as long as the human hand didn't like dip a bucket in and pour the water there, it becomes a natural body of water and natural bodies of water are considered to have the properties of purity attached to them. That is to say, once you fully immerse in the mikvah, you emerge pure. Suppose the mikveh isn't very clean, suppose the mikveh is extremely unclean, suppose you were perfectly clean before you went into the mikveh and you came out of the mikveh and boy did you want to shower, would you be pure? The answer is most definitely yes, so it isn't about water being able to rinse some kind of toxin or impurity off your body, if you went to a muddy mikvah, the muddy mikvah would be pure. That's not, by the way, why we call today's class muddy waters. So muddy mikvahs purify, and the most beautiful spa or nicest bath or shower doesn't. That doesn't make sense. No, of course it doesn't. It's not supposed to make sense, per se, to the human mind. It's not about human rhyme or reason. It's something that's beyond our understanding. And precisely this, then, is the point. What our enemies sought to make us forget, what they wanted to drive us away from, is this... Idea of chukiritzonecha. We do it because God said to do it. Don't be ridiculous, they said. In truth, every mitzvah could be observed as such. I could wear tefillin as a cultural thing. So, well, this is something that my ancestors put on and their ancestors put on. And it goes back and has a history of thousands of years. So I feel kind of cultural when I'm wearing tefillin. Bagels and lox aren't that old. At all. They're not even really Jewishly cultural. They were invented in New York State. But don't let me spoil your Sunday brunch. The point is that a person can do certain mitzvahs without any kind of faith. Without embracing any kind of higher ideas or ideals. But when you're doing a mitzvah which doesn't make any sense you can't say well I identify with this you know culturally it makes makes me feel good it touches or resonates with me. Who are you fooling? It doesn't make sense. It can only be observed because Hashem said so. The matzah can be viewed as cultural or it can be viewed as it should be. We eat it because Hashem said to eat it. It's incidental to this conversation, but chocolate-covered matzah doesn't do the job. I'm not saying you can't have kosher for Pesach, chocolate-covered matzah, but if you make the matzah taste like something else, it isn't matzah. It's got to be matzah. And you'll say, hey, what's the difference? Matzah is matzah. Bagels are bagels. Bagels are bagels. Matzah isn't necessarily matzah. It's got to be the right matzah. Why? Because God said so. I recently spoke to a person who said to me, my father did nothing for me. He abandoned us as children. I don't want to sit shiva for him. He said, my mother raised us. And then she went crazy too. So actually, he says, I dislike both of my parents intensely. But I understand that I should have to sit shiva for my mother because, I mean, she did raise us. She was there when we were small children. But my dad, I for sure don't have to sit shiva when he dies. Do I? To which I replied, you actually have to sit shiva because the Torah says you have to sit shiva. Because there's a familial connection or relationship. And it has nothing to do with our parents being nice or not. So if you dig a little deeper, all of the mitzvahs have to be fulfilled not because they touch us intellectually or emotionally, not because they resonate with us, but because Hashem says so. This is what our enemy couldn't countenance. They said, get God out of this equation. You want to have some kind of national entity, go right ahead. You want to have some kind of national food, then have a national food. You have national pastimes, have your national pastimes. Don't." connected to God or spirituality. I mentioned this previously, but perhaps the best iteration of a modern day Antiochus was an evil diabolical monster named Stalin. Do you know that he actually created Jewish settlements or collective farms? Many years ago, I met a Jew who was raised in such an environment. He told me that all of the things that had a Hebrew ring to it had to be erased. For example, he said, the land of Israel was not spelled Eretz Yisrael, but rather Erd Israel. Ayin Rezdal Erd Ered, Yiddish, and Israel was Ayin Yud Zion. Ayin Lamed, it's not even the proper Yiddish spelling. He said it was driven into our heads. We were literally brainwashed with this idea. There is no God. And the Jewish people are only a cultural phenomenon. And Yiddish is cultural. And that's okay. Stalin, Father Stalin, Mother Russia, they love us. As long as we're cultural. Don't mention God. This is what the previous Rebbe and his Hasidim battled against in their day. The defiling of the holiness of Judaism. We need to be really clear about this, friends. Hanukkah is not a cultural celebration. It really isn't. It's not the Jewish holiday in December. It's not a thing we do because it reminds us of heroism and strength and courage. We should have all those things. Just by the way, heroism is good. Courage is great. Self-defense, indispensable. Turning your cheek is not a Torah. Or Jewish value. Weakness is not something we should seek or be proud of. But that's not the message of Hanukkah. Although Hanukkah did involve an uprising, and Hanukkah did involve a revolution, and Hanukkah did involve valiant and, and, and incredible feats on the battlefield, that's not the message of Hanukkah. That wasn't the intent of our enemies, and that wasn't how we celebrated when we finally succeeded. Our enemies sought not to dispossess us or drive us from the land. They did not want to destroy us as a people, and there were many, many halachic Jews, meaning halachically Jewish, because the mother was Jewish, who behaved like Hellenists. It's fascinating to note that in the English translation of the al they don't write Malchus Yovan and Harasha. They don't write it the evil Greek empire. They call it the evil Hellenist empire. Because Hellenism is, is, a, is a notion, it's, it's a reality of a particular philosophy and system of governance that doesn't exist anymore. It's an ancient reality. And there's a modern day country called Greece. Rome is gone, Hellenism is gone, there's a country called Greece today. I get it. I'd be offended if I was Greek, ah, by the way, there were Greek Jews, and there were also Greek people who saved Jews during World War II. I do not mean to disparage Greek people in any way, shape, or form. Hellenist is a great term to use. But the word Yavan still means Greek. And somehow Greek became linked to this idea, or Yavan is linked to this idea of stripping the sacred nature of Torah from its body of wisdom. Remove the sanctity, disconnect it from God as mentioned in a previous episode, right on your animals, your farm animals, your, 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 your means of transportation. We have no portion, in the God of Israel. I'm sorry. (laughs) Like I said yesterday, the other option was to cancel the class, which I don't want to do. I'm really grateful that you're watching and that we have a chance to share words of Torah and inspiration together. I guess the point I'm trying to make is this. It is abundantly clear that the story of Hanukkah that's being told to us is not a story like any other. In fact, it's different from the rest of Jewish history. During the first temple era, what you might call the first commonwealth of Israel, for nearly a millennium, we lived in the land of Israel, and we fought many battles. Some we won, some we didn't. There were casualties, widows and orphans, suffering and pain, miracles Wonders, divine deliverance, and, yes, sometimes divine abandonment. A long, checkered story in history. We even had our own civil war. Yet each of these battles was not ideological. The hatred of the Jewish people was, well, good old-fashioned anti-Semitism. The hatred of an entity of Jewish people. Some of it was brutal. Some of it was absolutely evil, Hitlerite in nature. And yet it was never aimed at least solely at the ideology, at the spiritual philosophy, or at the soul of the Jewish people. The story of Purim is a classic story of twisted anti-Semitism. Of pure hate the story of Hanukkah is not what a lot of people don't know is that along with the enemy who were Hellenists or Assyrian Greek there was a large volume of Jewish Hellenists too living in the land of Israel who weren't rooting for the Maccabees they didn't have it in for the homeboy Hashmonaim. They fought for a Hellenist way of life. This was an ideological battle for the soul of Israel. The Hashmonayim. Kohanecha HaKadoshem, your holy Kohanim, as we refer to him in the Anerot prayer liturgy. They They fought to defend the holiness of Torah, the soul of the Jewish people. And this is what plays itself out in the pages of the Al-Anisim prayer. When we take a look in the Talmud, when the Talmud queries, my Hanukkah, what is the essence of Hanukkah? and I refer you to a previous episode, I don't want to go back and repeat all the things we talked about, but if you will go back and listen carefully, or you'll choose to look into the pages of the Talmud yourself, it's page 21, Mesechet Shabbat. You discover that there's this strange obsession with oil. The Hellenists, the enemy, occupy Jerush- Jerusalem, they capture the Beit HaMikdash, they turn the holy temple, the temple of the Jewish people, the center of the world's only extant monotheism at the time, into a center for idolatry. They don't destroy the Beit HaMikdash, they defile its holiness. They erect statues of Zeus, Apollo, Jupiter and other Greek gods or Hellenist gods they offer swine on the altar and they bring idolatrous rites and practices they even had their own kohanim Jewish kohanim doing their bidding and interestingly enough they took the time to defile the olive oil. How do you defile olive oil? Simple. Break the seal. They didn't add toxins or contaminants. They simply broke the seal. Because the halakha tells us that once the seal is broken, the olive oil is no longer pure. The truth is, it was more complicated than that. And they didn't even realize how much damage they were doing. And that's a subject for another day. How miraculous was that cruise of oil beyond what you think? Why were they so obsessed with oil? Do you know it is quite possible that the menorah was being lit in the base of Migdash by Hellenists? It's quite possible. We don't know that it wasn't done that way. There were offerings, non-kosher ones. They may well have been using olive oil, non-kosher olive oil, not because there was an actual foreign substance mixed in, but because it was tamay, ritually impure, something which is invisible, can't be seen, and it can't even be understood. They made a point of defiling all the olive oil. And we make a point of emphasizing miraculously, one cruise of olive oil survives and it is undefiled. And that one cruise of olive oil continues to burn for eight long days until fresh oil can come to us from a place called Tokoa. Best olive oil comes from Tekoa. What, what, is, what is the meaning of this? Clearly, it's a focal point of our, fe- of our festivities. As mentioned at the outset, all the things fried in oil. This is all about oil. What does that oil represent? What's the deeper meaning of the oil? Let's get past the technicalities. Just because they found a the cruise of olive oil doesn't mean we have to eat lots of cholesterol and get fat for a week. I mean, that's what's happening, but what's it really all about? It seems that the Rebbe, at the time, studying at the Sambarn in Paris, Hanukkah, 1936, he's narrowly escaped Nazi-occupied Germany because he feared for his and the Rebbe's life, and they've relocated to Paris. The French government is tolerant of Jewish people. Very liberal. The Rebbe is able to continue his studies, and the Rebbe continues her studies. And on occasion, the Rebbe would deliver a lecture, make a presentation. So it seems, although we don't have any actual first-hand corroboration of this, that in Hanukkah, unfortunately, the people who were there probably all ended up in Auschwitz. But on Chanukah, 1936, it seems that the Rebbe delivered a teaching, a lecture, at this shul, which had the address as number 17, and Rebbe writes at 17, very cryptic. I'm sharing with you a few sentences out of the cryptic sentences. The Rebbe doesn't create this question of Yovana, I'm, I'm creating that question. I'm merely framing the teaching, because to me, the teaching is actually a code-cracking idea. It's decoding or revealing and deciphering the deeper messages that are basically embedded in the al prayer as well as the Talmud statement, and of course, the oil of food we eat. So the Rebbe says, well, let's begin by taking a look in the Talmud. To see, where does the city of Tekoa, which from the story, that's where they would get get the oil from. Where does the story of Tekoa actually show up in Talmudic writing? So in the Gemara, Mesechet Menachot, on page 85b, we have a Mishnah right in the middle of the page. And the Mishnah is talking about, you guessed it, olive oil. Why? Because olive oil was used in the Beit Hamikdash for many purposes, not only for kindling the Menorah or other lamps. It was also kneaded into the flour, the flour that was used to produce meal or grain offerings. So the Mishnah says, you must know that takoa alpha l'shemid. Takoa is alpha for Shemin. So you want to know what Alpha is? Yes, you're right. Alpha is Aleph. Or A in Greek. So interesting that the whole story is about the Yvonim, or the Greeks, and the Mishnah chooses to say that the olive oil used in the base of English isn't Aleph, but Alpha. It's kind of like in the vernacular we told about today, like the, the first stab at something is called Alpha. Better. So alpha is the beginning of the first one. And that's because Allah for alpha is the first letter of the alphabet. And as such, when you want to grade things, you call it grade A. So grade A oil, it's funny, the oil today is graded by X's. You have triple X oil as the cleanest oil. But in the Talmud, in the Mishnah, the oil is graded as grade A, or grade alpha. Tekoa, alpha. Tekoah, best, the top, top of the line, insof, insofar as oil is concerned. So the Gemara analyzes this business of Tokoa and oil. And the Gemara says the following It is said, Vayishlach Yoav, Tekoah. Yoav sends for Tokoa. Why does he send the messenger to Tekoa? Vayikach Mishami takes from there Isha Chachama A wise woman. He takes a wise woman, he's looking for a wise woman so he goes to Tekoa to find a wise woman. Okay, what's going on here? What is this? Why is he looking for a wise woman and why is he going to Tekoa? Why is he looking for a wise woman specifically? So Tekoa was a small but important town On the frontier of the Judean desert. Tekoa is located about 15 kilometers south of the city we call today Jerusalem, Yerushalayim. We're pretty sure that Tekoa was actually built in its fullest sense by Rechovam. That's the son of King Solomon, Shlomo HaMelech. However, it does seem that the city of Tekoa had to have existed prior to Rechovam's building or developing the city... Because Yoav is in the times of Dov and So, it's a small town, but it's an important town. As we see, it's a town that produces the best olive oil. Excuse me. So what's the background here? Maybe you heard of a man named Avshalom. He was the son of David HaMelech. I'll read to you from the uh, Steinsaltz edition of the Tanakh, which gives us an overview. We're told here that as events continue to unfold in the royal family, King David appears to be more and more tolerant. Yoav, his commander-in-chief, sees that the king suffers due to his detachment from Afshalom. I guess you would call that today a dysfunctional family. And he acts in an indirect manner to influence the king to allow Afshalom to return. The king accepts the suggestion and he commands Yoav, bring Avshalom back to his house. But he refuses any personal contact with Avshalom. Following another request from Yoav, David cannot refuse any longer, and he reestablishes a personal relationship or connection with his son. Avshalom is, by all accounts, the most prominent member of his father's family. And he has great aspirations. I mean, he thinks he's going to be the king. But he's unable to achieve them as long as he's isolated. So... Through forceful means, he prevails on on Yoav to request that his father relate to him personally. Once again, the king brings Avshalom close again. And then the road is open for Avshalom to move toward a more central role in the kingdom. And he begins to fulfill his ambitions and it doesn't end pretty. So what happens is that Yoav sees that Davon Melech yearns for a relationship with his son their relationship. It's complicated. So now, in order to kind of work things out, Yoav can't dare to disobey the king and just bring Avshalom back. He creates a strategy. You know, kind of choreographing circumstances. So that David will invite Avshalom back. The first thing he needs is a very insightful and clever woman. She also has to be a really good actress. She's going to have to play a very unusual role and do it very convincingly. And she's got to be able to think on her feet. Yoav knows that for this particular message and to create the right set of circumstances, he's going to need a woman. She's got to be really clever, really smart, really insightful and resourceful. So he brings a woman from Tekoa, and he says to her, "I want you to mourn. I want you to mourn. I want you to wear mourning garments. Don't don't use cosmetics. Don't don't use what we would call today, makeup. And you'll be like a woman who's mourning for a dead person. For many days. You'll come to the king." and Yoav feeds her her lines. Here's what you're going to say. Now, he may not have told her exactly what to say, because then he would just look for an actress. And actresses aren't necessarily the wisest people. Maybe they're, could be a smart actress, but all the actress has to be smart enough to do is to actually memorize her lines. But Yoav knows that's not going to work. You need some fuzzy logic here. You can't just have somebody come in and memorize lines because you don't know how the king's going to respond. Instead, as the Mepharshim, the, the, the commentaries explain, Yoav explains to this woman what his goals are. She needs to put on a stunning performance. The kind of performance that is going to lead the king himself to relent and allow Afshalom back home. You understand? He needs a wise woman. So the Gemara says, yeah, he needs a wise woman. And where is he going to get her from? He goes to Tekoa. So the Gemara says, "Maish no Tekoa. What do you mean he goes to Tekoa? A wise woman is wherever a wise woman is. Since when does a wise woman have to come from Tekoa? Why would a wise woman come from Tekoa? It doesn't even make any sense. The Maharsha has a, an interesting commentary on this. He says, like, who says that have sent for Tekoa, sent to Tekoa to get a wise woman from Tekoa? And he says, very simple, because if, She was looking for a wise woman. You would say he was looking for a wise woman in Tekoa. But he went to Tekoa. In other words, he said, i got to find the right person. But the chances or probability of that wise woman are going to be found in Tekoa. Why? Rabbi Yochanan says, Because the people of Tekoa had an enormous abundance of oil, olive oil. And they used to even drink it. So, Chochmah Metsuya On a literal level, it sounds like olive oil somehow stimulates brain development. And because there's going to be olive oil, the people there will be wiser. So, what then does this liquid called olive oil, which shows up very early in the Torah, we we got olive oil being used for sacramental purposes with Jacob, where he's pouring oil over the stone. And I once gave a lecture on that. You can go to Chabad.org. The oil and the stones. What was up with that oil? By the way, there's a Chameka connection. So there's this business. Oil shows up copiously in the Torah. shows up with Yaakov, but then it shows up again when the Jewish people have to consecrate the Mishkan. There's a lot of oil. And of course, the leader of the Jewish people at the time, be he the spiritual leader, Kohen Gadol, or the political leader, the king, has to be anointed with oil. That's why the Kohen Gadol is called Kohen HaMashiach. Mashiach means anointed. And the person who will lead the world to peace is going to be called Mashiach. David Ha-Melach was called Mashiach because he was anointed with oil. So, Torah places tremendous emphasis and importance to the idea or substance of oil. Olive oil, specifically. The Gemara tells us very clearly that there is a link between chokhmah, wisdom, intuition, insightfulness, and oil. The Rebbe says, well, in light of this, when we look at the story of Hanukkah and we see this obsession with defiling oil, could it perhaps have something to do not only with the physical substance of oil, not only with the kindling of a menorah, or other lamps, or kneading oil into flour, but perhaps this becomes a paradigm, iconic, of what the vanim, of what our enemies were seeking. They were seeking to defile the oil. In many, many holy sforum it is written that the Greeks were known for their philosophy. The Romans, who conquered the Greeks and tried to emulate their ways, hence there really is no such thing as Roman philosophy or even Roman civilization. Rashi says it the Mesechat de He says this nation has nothing of their own. Of course they don't. Western civilization, which is exported by the Romans, is Greek. The great philosophers were Greek, not Roman. Just about all of the Greek kings were actually quite brilliant and highly educated. Most of the Roman Caesars were brutes, with the outstanding exception of Marcus Aurelius Antoninus who wrote a book a philosophical treatise that is still read till today. Marcus Aurelius is the exception, not the rule. By and large, the Roman Caesars were not known for great intelligence or at least education. But the Greeks were. Alexander the Great was a brilliant scholar. Aristotle was his personal teacher. When Aristotle began to teach his esotericos teaching at the Lyceum, Alexander wasn't happy. There's a letter, which I believe is still extant in Oxford University, where Alexander writes a letter to his erstwhile teacher, berating him for revealing the secrets of his philosophy to the public. Aristotle taught in the Lyceum, and the the teachings would be distilled in two different forms. In the evening, Aristotle would entertain the Athenians. He would uh, teach, and those teachings are called exotericos, the external teachings. But during the day when people were working, that's when he had his inner coterie of disciples, and he would teach them the secrets, the deeper rhythm of his philosophies, and those were called esotericos. By the way, the word exoteric and esoteric comes directly from Greek, the inner and the outer. But Aristotle popularized philosophy. Far more than Socrates, for example, did. So Alexander wasn't happy. He said, hey, you know, I I make a living with this. People respect Alexander because when Alexander the Great gave a speech, he could evoke and invoke all kinds of philosophical ideas. But now it's going to be something everybody knows. It's a very revealing little letter. A, it tells you that Aristotle and Alexander had this personal relationship, it kind of is evidence to, to that, that teacher-pupil relationship in Alexander's youth. I think even more so. To me, that letter reveals that Alexander saw his standing to be framed by his intelligence, his ability to engage philosophically. We don't find this with the Roman Caesars. At least, by and large, not. They were known for their brilliant military strategy and brutal, carry, brutal way of carrying it out. Mighty armies, brutal occupations, extremely powerful. And endlessly in search of sensual libido. But philosophy? Rome is not known for that the Greeks are. But really this precedes him and it says in many, many holy svarim, it talks about this idea that the Assyrian Greeks or the Greek Empire, the Hellenists, represented this flowering of what they called secular wisdom. A wisdom that was precisely and pointedly not linked or fused to any kind of religious faith, observance, passion, or fervor was wisdom, was academic. You see, heretofore, the idea of wisdom was invariably linked also to some kind of faith practice. You know, think of the aboriginals living in this part of the world. The medicine man was the doctor, the philosopher, and he was also like the priest. He represented religion. You see, faith and wisdom kind of went together hand in hand. But the Hellenists pioneered a new thing. They said, faith, faith is faith, whatever, believe whatever you want. Wisdom is the byproduct of human ingenuity. Now, let me be clear. This has nothing to do with the sciences. Because, strictly speaking, science means knowledge. And the discipline of science comes from observation. You observe a reality, you document a reality, and then patterns emerge. And then you're able to gain knowledge of things. The term scientific theory is, by definition, oxymoronic. If it's scientific, it's not a theory. If it's a theory, it's not scientific. It's like the word an educated guess, which is oxymoronic, but it has its purpose. An educated guess means, look... I'm only guessing, but I'm basing that guess on things I know. So we could say we have an intelligent theory. We could say we have a supposition. Within the realm of scientific possibility, we have a supposition. But it's not scientific per se. Philosophy is not based really on the observance of reality. It's people's ideas of what makes people happy, what gives people fulfillment, the purpose of life, what is a higher ideal, what is a higher calling, what should a person be seeking from his terrestrial existence. Some of the philosophers were profoundly atheistic. One of the most famous philosophers whose name continues to endure on, not in terms of intelligence, but sensual pleasure, was a man named Epicure. Epicure was a person who believed in nothing other than the body. His philosophy was based on pleasure. Now, he was quite philosophical about his attainment of pleasure. Although there are rumors of him having orgies and all kinds of endless pleasure-seeking ways, the historical facts don't necessarily line up with that whilst we weren't always watching him and don't know what exactly he did, he talked about denial of the physical or material. He said people really just want relationship. The most rewarding thing in the world is relationship. He had these communes. He was like a hippie of antiquity. He would deny himself food for extended periods of time, then eat a little. and He would would say, I get just as much pleasure. And it doesn't cost me anything. And I don't get sick from it. eat a little cheese, bread, a little cheese. Ah, it's delicious. If you're hungry, cheese is delicious. If you stuff your face, you're looking for caviar. So he has all these philosophical ideas, but it's entirely atheistic and secular. So much so that in the Hebraic tradition, we call a person who believes in no God and no spirituality and no soul and no creation and no purpose. The ultimate father of nihilism is Epicure, and we call that kind of person an apicorus. which according to many of the Rishonim is actually a takeoff on the name of Epicurus. That's what the Greeks, what the Hellenists represented. What rankled them about the Jewish people wasn't the Jewish people's intelligence. It was a, their, their blind faith. Their willingness to bow their heads in submission. They were so smart, so educated, so literate, and yet so simplistic in their faith. So, what is wrong with you people? Stop believing in this mumbo jumbo, purity, impurity, show it, prove it, demonstrate it. If it can be scientifically proven, fine that it exists. If it's a philosophy, well, then it's a philosophy. Your philosophy and my philosophy. Don't have to be ro- more right or less right or wrong. It's a philosophy. Their whole approach to life was to rout out, to remove, to deracinate any vestige of faith or revelation. It's all about human intelligence. This is called, in the terms of Jewish mysticism, Chochma de Klipa. the Klippa. The chachma that is but a husk. It's drained of its godly vitality. It has its holiness. It has godliness removed from it. It focuses only on the husk, only on what you see on the surface. It means looking at life superficially, superficial experiences. There's nothing more than meets than then what meets the eye, or what the body feels. What you like. There is no higher power. There is no higher calling. There's people. And YOLO. That's what they said. You only live once. Eat, drink, be merry. Tomorrow you may die. It's supposed to be a Roman phrase, but actually it's a Greek phrase. It's a Hellenist phraseology. It's a Hellenist philosophy. It preceded Epicure, but it became his mantra. There's nothing more to life than what meets the eye. That's called chachma of klipa. Klipa means a husk. To us, what meets the eye, the terrestrial material world, is only the surface and is so much more. A person is not a collection of bone and skin and plasma. A person is a shama, a soul. The soul is eternal. The body is here today and Decomposes tomorrow. That's not what life's about. Life's about. A far more profound. And a much greater truth. We reject. A life of nihilism. Out of hand. Meaningless. Empty. Chas v'sholem. That's the difference. To chachma of Kedusha. And chachma of klippa Ah if that's what the battle was about, then Yavon becomes the representation of it. Not Hellenist. Not Antiochus. The word or name Yavon. Why? Well, because Yavon actually means something. You see, The term Yavon is biblical, but it has to be vowelized slightly differently. Yavain. Yavain is mud. What does mud have to do with this? What is mud? Soil mixed into water. What is the deeper representation of soil and water. Well, let's take a look at the Gemara above a Kama. Let's see how the Gemara views the concept of water, a deeper message to the concept of water. The Gemara says, Rabbi Yochanan says, <laughs> the name of Rabbi Shimon Bar what is the meaning of? What does it mean? Fortunate are you who, so to speak, plant upon water and send forth the foot or the hoof of the ox. So the Gemara says, the interpretation here is, anybody who immerses himself in or engages, spends his life studying Torah and performing acts of loving kindness, he or she will merit the inheritance of two tribes. Oh, it's by the way, regel shor vichamor, ox and donkey. Ashrei chem Zoire. the planting. What does zorei mean? Planting. Ein Planting is a euphemism in Torah literature for, you guessed it, kindness. You so sow kindness. S O W. Hosea, the prophet, says it. Ziru seeds. You talk about planting seeds. You do kind of somebody planting a seed. You don't know what that seed will yield. Every act of kindness is like a seed planted. The act of kindness is gone. Well, the seed is gone. But what will it engender? What will blossom as a result of it? How many beautiful stories... Can you yourself tell about a kindness either done to you or a kindness you were privileged to do for another, which ended up begetting fruit in the future? I'll tell you a little, a silly little story. Maybe it is silly, I don't know. When I was a boy in 1977 or 76, we were living in New Jersey and the Rebbe came out with this call that we should visit. All Chatsidim should go and visit Jews who couldn't participate in Jewish life. Hospitals, prisons. My father at the time was a principal of a Hebrew day school. He was involved in Jewish education. So at night, he wanted to fulfill the Rebbe's directive. He went to a hospital. And he took me along. I think my brother and sister too, but I don't remember. I was just a little boy. But I do remember it was very traumatic for me. I don't want to go to a hospital. I was terrified to go to a hospital. And he lit the menorah for a patient. And I still remember the face of this patient and the smile on his face. And my father said to me, sing a Hanukkah song. And I'm like, I don't want to sing. And he said, sing a Hanukkah song. And I'm like, I don't want to sing a Hanukkah song. And he forced me to sing a Hanukkah song. And I was like, singing a Hanukkah song. And this old man had like tears in his eyes from this kid singing a Hanukkah song and he had a menorah burning next to his bed. You know, I never forgot that. It like stayed in my head. I remember coming to school the next day and telling my classmates about it. I remember some of them sneering. They were like very not Chabad. And it's like, it's like stuck in my head. And a couple of days ago, it's the first night of Hanukkah, and I say to myself, you know, there's this person I know isn't." He's in the hospital, and he's so despondent about it. I knew how despondent he was. I spoke to him a few days, and it was Hanukkah. And I said to my wife, well, I'm, I'm going to go visit him. She says, it's COVID. You can't even get into the hospital. I said, well, I'm, I'm double vaxxed. She said, I'm going to let you in. They only let family. In. I said, I'm, I'm going to bring a menorah. She says, what are you talking about? You can't let a menorah in the hospital. I, said, and I And this image was in my head, this act of kindness that my father did. Because the Rebbe said that people should do this, like a seed, the Rebbe planted, and a seed of a seed of a seed, and this is in my head. I can't tell you why it's in my head. So I, I did go to the hospital, and I, I didn't even expect to get in. But I said I'm just going to go, and and I and they call up, They call up. It's like ten o'clock at night. And the patient. They call up to the patient. Some guy is here. He says he's your Rabbi. She says, Oh my God, I can't believe he's here. So I told him I would try to come, and I come to his room, and I said, like I have him in order. He says, I would love to light the menorah. We light the menorah. A nurse walks in and she says, wow, that's so nice. I said, we're guarding the candle. Everything's fine. No, 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 it's great. And he was so touched and he was so moved by it. And I said, you know what? I'm going to post this on Facebook. I'm going to share it. So I, I took a picture and I said, you know, and he, he dictated me. His name is Sam. He says, Sam was feeling blue until you made it untrue. Okay, so I wrote that on Facebook. And I got a message the next day from, from a colleague of mine in Copenhagen, in Denmark, he's the Rebbe Schliech in Denmark. Rabbi Lowell says, by the way, your post on Facebook inspired me to go visit another elderly person was, like, I guess, housebound or hospital bound. And he sends me a picture. And this is what I mean when I say that kindness is like a seed. You don't know what happens from the kindness. Kindness is always more than the frame of its existence. What is a seed? A seed is this tiny little thing. But the sleek or shiny exterior of the seed, it rots or decomposes very quickly. You did somebody a kindness. You made them feel good for a moment. And then, like, they move on. Ah, not kindness. The prophet said kindness is planting a seed. You never know an act of kindness is going to influence somebody else. Look at this crazy story. An act of kindness, like, 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 more than 40 years ago. 40 plus years ago. And then, it, and it kind of galvanizes me to do something. And across the ocean, somebody else benefits. That's kindness. Kindness is a seed. Tzedakah is always greater than the sum of its parts. So now we know what planting's about. What's water about? Ah, water, says the Gemara. Ein mayim ella torah. Water. Water is torah. What does that mean? How do we know this? Because Isaiah said, Hoi, ho, cold summer, You're thirsty? L'chul mayim, Go to water. Wow, how profound. I mean, what would we do without the experts? I mean, the prophets. I mean, if you were thirsty, where would you go? It's good Isaiah told us where to go. If you're thirsty, drink water. Are you kidding? For this I need the word of God? But our sages tell us indeed, the verse isn't speaking about material thirst. It's speaking about the thirst and the yearning of every soul. Every human being has a soul, a piece of God. You have it. I have it. Jewish people have a soul. Non-Jewish people have a soul. Every human being is created in God's image, and because every human being is created in God's image, we all have a thirst. How do you want to slake that thirst? A lot of people think that I'm hungry. I need. I have an appetite for something. I'm looking for something. I. I must have more materialism. I need more pleasure. I need a joint. I need chocolate. I need to uh, do something pleasurable. Wrong. These things are like pseudo-fillers. That's where we get addicted to them. They don't bring us lasting joy. They don't give us fulfillment. If you're thirsty, if you're thirsting for a deeper spiritual relationship, l'chulam mayim, go to water. Water is Torah. As the Gemara explains, that the world cannot exist without hydration. The world can exist. I mean, a, a shell of life, an exterior shell of life can exist. But the meaning of life, the purpose of life, the vivacity, the energy, true exuberance and passion, spirituality, it can't exist without Torah. That is to say, Torah means revelation, God's ideas, the creator of heaven, earth and us the creator gives us the wisdom to be able to find our way home, to nurture and develop a bond with God so Torah is water it can slake the thirst of our souls the Rebbe said "Aha! so Torah is water your vein is mud. When does mud show up first? The first time we hear about mud, we hear about clay with the formation of a man whose name is Adam, and a woman named Eve who comes from, it's his other half. God creates Adam and Eve, an androgynous creature, from clay. We don't hear about the word mud. However, clay shows up again in Genesis chapter 14. In verse 10, Abraham takes on these mighty kings. There's a world war going on in the Middle East. And the four kings were outnumbered by five kings, and they nevertheless won the battle. The Torah goes on to say in verse 10 The valley of Sidim was full of pits. Pits of clay, pits of mud. So Rashi says, "Beiris beiris." He says the first thing this means is there was clay for the purposes of building. Like a mine, a quarry, that's where you get coal or stone or gold. They mined clay. They used it for purposes of land development. But then Rashi says something else. He says there's an Agadic teaching. And the Medrash Agada is... They weren't mines of clay, they were repositories of mud or cement like clay. The and a miracle happened to the king of stone that they went out of there because people had cast doubts on the story. The skeptics said, Oh, you tell me this. They said, You don't really think Abraham was miraculously slaved from a fire, no such thing, right? And yet, when the people fell into these deep, deep pits filled with endless amounts of mud, what happens in mud? You sink. You sink. You can't crawl out of mud. And yet, somehow they managed to get out. That can't be explained. So this shone a light on the veracity of Abraham's miraculous survival from Nimrod's furnace. And the people said, wow, so miracles do happen. What is this? The commentaries on Rashi say Betoicha Bairis mugbol means ma'vamayim, clay or soil mixed with water. This interpretation calls Ba'ir Ischemar literally pits of mud. So they filled the pit with 50 or 60 feet of mud. And they would dip into the mud, and that's what they would use. When you fall into mud, you're gonna drown in the mud. You can't swim in the mud. The mud pulls you down. Think quicksand. Think quicksand. Look in the book of Jeremiah. In the 35th chapter. Vayit ba yimyo betit. Yimyo sank into the mud. You sink in mud. So mud shows up. And it's something you sink into. Nachmanides has like a whole discussion about this. He says, he says, how, how would that how would that help them believe in Abraham's God? He says, like, just because they survived, they, they worshiped idols. Maybe they'd give credit to their idol. And he has this fascinating way of explaining it. He says, Maybe when Abraham came, somehow he managed to extricate them. He, had, he like literally magically miraculously pulled them from the quicksand and because Abraham's arrival suddenly gave them the ability it's impossible to get out of quicksand and Abraham brought them forth the people said wow this man knows something he is indeed connected to god miracles do happen with him at any rate we can see that mud is directly linked to the concept of water That has soil mixed into it the word mud shows up in the book of psalms if you take a look in psalm 40 the third verse of psalm 40 tells us or talks to us about sinking in the mud here's an english rendition from the kihat from the kihat translation He raised me from the turbulent pit from the slimy mud and set my feet upon a rock steadying my steps. The slimy mud. The Mepharshim say in Hebrew it's meber Sha'on that's the turbulent pit. The word Sha'on is Darkness Confusion Mitit Ha Yovin Yovin Minhayam from the sea lashon Refes the muddy waters from the mud. Mitsudsian says Yovin is the mud, the muddy bottoms and is Hamayim at the ocean bed. There is a soft mud. It's not hard ground. Later on, King David speaks in the 69th Psalm, once again in the third verse, of sinking in the muddy depths. Mitzudah's David says, this slimy mud, if you stand in it, so if water is Torah, what is mud? Earthiness is a way to describe the material reality. We talk about Gashmiut, the word geshem comes from rain, but actually it refers to things that grow from the soil. Hakoilhayomina offer. A person who's involved in the pursuit of nothing but sensual pleasure is called an earthy person, immersed in earthiness, selfishness, not soul or selfless, material body and selfish. One represents, if you will, fire, the Ner Hashem Nishmasodam, the candle of God that is the soul of a person. And the body represents or is represented by clay. Adam and Eve's body was made from clay and God blew a soul of life into it. So if kindling flames is about the spiritual energy, earthiness is about the pollution of the pure Waters that can hydrate and serve as a life elixir. You can't drink mud. You see, conceptually, this becomes emblematic. Mud becomes emblematic of wisdom that is drained from its pure source and has earthiness or materialism mixed into it. That's the philosophies we were referring to. And it's called... Yavain. And the Hellenist entity or government is Yavon. Yavain is Yavon. And here the Rebbe says something so interesting. The word Yavon, or Yavain, mud, or ancient Greece, is spelled with a yud, And the yud is really a dot with a little bit of an extension on the bottom. You don't see it here in that fashion fully. But this is a Yud. After the Yud comes the Vav. The Vav has a Yud, but it goes down. It sinks down. It's the Yud sinking. And that's followed by a long Nun. And the long Nun has the top like a Yud, continues like a Vav, but then goes beneath the line. Yavun is actually a snapshot of what we're talking about. Here's another image where you can see them all together. Yud goes down to Vav, comes down to the Nun. This is the line. The Vav is at the line. The Nun is beneath the line. In Torah literature, Yud represents Chochmah, or wisdom. But if the wisdom has Soil mixed into it. If it's not divine wisdom, if it's not revelatory wisdom, it isn't wisdom from a higher place, but rather the wisdom we create on our own, the muddy wisdom or the muddy waters, then what happens is it begins to sink into selfishness. Vav, the second letter in Yovan or Yavain, is a representation in mystical writings for the emotional reality of a person which are incidentally made up of six components. And Vav is the numeric equivalent of six. Chesed, Gevura, Teferes. Chesed is right energy, like kindness, embracing. Gevura is left energy, like discipline, parrying. Tiferes is central energy, like mercy, which brings together elements of at once benevolence in action, but at the same time, a very, very harsh look at the reality, a judgmental reality, and yet what is merciful despite it all. It's not chesed and gvura fused. It's an animal unto itself. That's one, two, and three. And then, netzach, hod, yisod. Once again, netzach is right, engaging with others, competing, achieving victory. Hod is an inward focus, sticking to the program and not being... Disturbed by what's going on around you. Being able to tune everything and everybody out. And your sod means being able to connect to people. Where you can tune everybody out except the person you're talking to. You're not looking all over. You're focused. I could talk about this for an hour. But those are the basic elements of what we call our emotional psyche. The chokhmah represents then the intellectual. The intellectual goes into... The Vav into the emotional. And the Nun, the Nun represents that which sinks below. As the Alta explains in Lukotatera, when he uses the name Aharon, he says, Aleph represents that flash of inspiration. Har represents the mountain of self, healthy self awareness. And Nun represents that which is beneath. The line, so to speak. And our own specialty was to be able to take the Aleph, the loftiest concepts, bring them into the mountain of my self, self-awareness, healthy self-awareness, self-esteem, strength, you know, strong as a mountain, until I can have it go beneath the ground or beneath earthiness, so that lofty ideals can change and transform things that are otherwise mundane or beyond the pale. He says, He says, the, the tribe, the clan of Levi, who went around and built the Mishkan, he says in in HaTedah, in, in Parshas Nase, he says the real name is divided into Geresh Nun. The whole notion, concept, idea of building a Mishkan in the desert. The desert is a place where life can't flourish. It represents by extension that which is harsh and hostile to divinity or godliness. Our mission? Bring godliness there. Gershon drives the nun away with a negativity. So Yavon represents exactly the opposite. The Yud sinks into above. The bad ideas, the toxic intellectual approach, eventually flows into the emotions. When a person is elevated by divine or godly concepts. It filters into the emotions and it makes a person selfless, loving, kind, and compassionate, merciful, and truly engaged in others. But when a person looks at life, not in a revelatory way, where I'm going to receive wisdom, but I am the be-all and end-all of truth. Whatever makes sense to me is true, and if it doesn't make sense to me, it isn't. Aristotle once said that. That eventually, leads into emotions where I don't really care about you or anybody unless it serves my purpose. If it makes me feel good, I'll be nice to you because that makes me feel good. If it doesn't make me feel good, I'll be cruel to you or indifferent. If you think about it, it's exactly what's going on in Western civilization today and it's never really been any different. And the nun represents sinking into the muddy depths. So, my friend, the battle of Hanukkah was ideological. They sought to muddy the waters of Torah. Study Torah, they said. The Torah is interesting. Moses, Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, Confucius. It's all nice. It's all wise. Wise people. No, my friends. Moshe Abenu, our teacher, is Rabban Shalkol Hanavim. He wasn't a smart man. He wasn't an educated man. He wasn't an insightful man. I mean, he was all those things. But that's not Moshe Rabbeinu. He's our teacher because Moshe Emet to emet, because he represented God's Torah, because he was entirely self-abnegating, because he transcended himself altogether and became transparent so Hashem's word could flow through him. That's the meaning of Torah. The efforts of our enemies then and today are embodied in the name Yavon. Some will tell you, the water doesn't have to be that clean. It can have some sediment mixed into it. Anyway, there's a fire burning. So any water works to extinguish a fire. We're trying to slake thirst. And if the water isn't potable, it doesn't make you healthy. Muddy Waters, or yavon, is actually iconic of the Hanukkah struggle. Then, and even today, by remaining focused on the truth of Torah, by being engaged in a Yiddishkeit that is unadulterated, undiluted, and unmuddied, by kindling the flame of our soul with a Shem Zayas that is pure, the light of Torah continues to burn and illuminate brightly. As long as we continue to drink the life-elixing waters of Torah, we shall overcome all of our challenges. We shall continue to illuminate or dent the darkness and very, very speedily. And in our days, we will see a transformation of the world as we know it. That's the real dirt on Hanukkah. Dig deep and realize that ultimately, Hashem is challenging each and every one of us. And it doesn't require actual anti-Semitism. It's anti-Godism we're dealing with. They may not hate me as a Jew. But if they hate my Jewish ideas. And they're opposed to my Torah values. I'm locked in the same struggle. And the good news. Is our ancestors prevailed thanks to Hashem's deliverance in their days and we will tzah Hashem, prevail in our time thank you for joining i hope you enjoyed the series if chas v'shalom mashiach isn't here by next year perhaps we'll return to continue to develop this series but for now these four episodes will be the conclusion of love lights and hanukkah I hope that you'll continue to come back to youtube.com forward slash Shabbat Mendel Kaplan. I'm going to try with Hashem's help to continue to teach and share the wisdom of Torah to the best of my ability. And I pray that it is always unadulterated, that I become a funnel, that I don't dirty the waters, chas with my own ideas or own biases. And instead, I'm able to bring you the pure, unsullied truth. For when we study Torah, we can all realize our potential that reveals or triggers a redemptive element and spark within each and every one of us. Ultimately, this is what will catalyze. Universal redemption with the coming of Mashiach. B'mheira ubi speedily and in our days. Afrelich and Chanukah. Happy Chanukah to all of you. I'd appreciate it if you could like, share. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe. And get your friends and relatives to do the same. God bless you and have a beautiful day.